0: I mean you asked me before how did it feel when the trip finished and I have this real vivid memory of somewhere on that descent road just having to pedal downhill um I could see the end game but I was still having to work really hard to get there and I just completely broke down
1: Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, today's episode is just, oh, it's an, it's incredible. Tom is so real. He keeps it so uh, raw for us. Uh, he, he obviously went through a, a pretty hard time when, with his wife passing away. Um, and as he said uh, to me was he grabbed life by the horns after that and decided to do this trip that he had been talking about for twenty years, which is bike pack across Iceland. Uh, but we do spend a lot of the episode talking about leading up to that, talking about his wife passing and how how hard that was. So if you're you're going through something, or if you've been through this before, uh, I'm sorry if it brings up you know old uh, feelings or wounds. Um, and if you haven't gone through something like this, there's there's so much we can all learn from Tom and what he's gone through and the response he had, which was turning to adventure, turning to effort and, uh, really doing something special with his time and with his life. Uh, and now, and there is an update at the end. I do want to plug that. It's really awesome to hear the update of his life. So please listen to the whole episode. Um, and before we jump in, I did want to thank our recent patrons who have been supporting us, uh, Neap Tide, Justin K and Linda S, all new patrons. If you would like to become a patron of the show, sponsor us, you know, support us monthly a dollar five dollars whatever it is go to the show notes uh but going back to tom i did i do not want to um take away from that at all and i want i can't thank him enough for being on the show and telling his story and being so open with us uh it was an incredible conversation so i hope you enjoy let's go ahead and jump right into it All right, folks. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're talking to John, oh, Tom Johnstone. I already messed it up, Tom. Welcome to the show.
0: <laughs> hey, thank you very much for having me.
1: So, so Tom, I, I know it's a lot later over there, so I really appreciate you jumping on, and I know you're enjoying one of our uh, or athletics beers, athletic Bruins beers, but uh, t- tell me where you're coming from in the world, and if that is home and where you grew up, and if not, where did you grow up?
0: So I'm coming from the, up on the coast in North Wales in the United Kingdom and the little town that I live in now is just sort of 10 miles, 10, 15 miles away from where I grew up. So I've moved around and lived in various towns along the coast here. But um, yeah, I guess North Wales has been home for at least two thirds of my life
1: growing up there what kind of things were you into were you an, an explorative kid did you get you, did you have a lot of freedom growing up or did you have to discover adventure and adventure sports on your own later
0: i was very lucky we grew up in a house that was sort of on the edge of town so you know i had i had town and suburbia on one side of me and fields and countryside on the other and both my dad and my stepdad had been rock climbers and mountaineers and kayakers and general outdoorsmen um, sort of in their younger years so I grew up with that being a, a normal sort of thing to do and when I was about 10 or 11 um, I think probably in an effort to get me out of the house and out of my mum's hair um, she sort of threw me out there and and made a few contacts for me made some helped me make some new friends who were into mountain biking so I spent pretty much every summer holiday and weekend and evening after school from the age of 11 up until I was about 16 out riding bikes in the woods. Um, I joined the local canoeing and kayaking club and local climbing club. And so I was just generally messing about in the outdoors all the way through my teenage years. And, and that has just more or less carried on right the way up until now.
1: Is there a a, a decent enough culture in that area to, to, you know, ha- have enough groups or enough support to do that? Or, or are you still kind of outliers in a lot of ways?
0: So at high school, I was definitely an outlier. You know, my high school had maybe 1400 kids in there. And, and out of those 1400, there was maybe five or six of us who mountain biked and Probably a similar number who climbed and and even fewer who canoed and kayaked. Um, But the the culture in the area, you don't you really don't have to travel far to get to a town that is a huge adventure hub. And, you know, North Wales was a little bit different back in the the 80s and 90s when I was growing up. But certainly now, you know, school kids now and, and kids are some of my friends they're riding their mountain bikes to school and they're going climbing after school and they're going out paddling on the weekends and there's a huge culture here of it and mountain biking especially over over covid over the last 18 months has absolutely boomed and there's kids out digging trails in the woods and there's people riding everywhere and the adventure tourism industry in north wales has absolutely exploded in the last 10 years so we have got you know, we've got a surf lagoon and we've got rock climbing and we've got canyoning and whitewater rafting and mountain biking. And we've got pretty much every activity you could want to do in North Wales. Maybe not on the scale of, you know, our whitewater rafting is nothing like the whitewater rafting that you've got out in the US. Um, but we've got some genuinely world class mountain biking. We've got some of the best sea hiking in the world. We've got incredible rock climbing. So there's a lot you can do close to home here and a lot of variety.
1: Anytime someone on the podcast is in an area I've never been, especially, I'm always looking up Google like pictures while you're talking. And and I just, there's so much of this area I've never even seen. I feel like I've never heard about it.
0: Yeah. And I guess in the UK, um, you know, people are more conscious of the, the big mountains and the more wild spaces up in Scotland. And, you know, the Lake district in England gets a lot more hype. Um, but I do think Snowdonia is really getting on the map. And like I say, Snowdonia's has just got that, oh, and Snowdonia and North Wales has just got that bit of real bit of everything. And, Only little bits and pieces of it are really out there, world-class stuff. But you can go from surfing before breakfast to mountain biking to, you know, three, three and a half thousand foot mountains, which is as big as they come over, certainly in England and Wales. But, you know, some decent mountains and and you're doing all of that elevation. Um, You know, you can do a, a, a lap of a big mountain before lunch and then you can go out climbing on some of the stuff that rock climbing really had its infancy some classic routes you could rock climb all afternoon long and then you could go out and have a barbecue on a beach and go stand up paddle boarding with your friends or take your kids riding a, a sweet pump track of an evening you really can just bounce activity after activity here and you know i've lived here well i lived here for the first 20 years of my life and i've been back here now for six. Um, and there's still mountain bike trails I've never ridden. And there are more rock climbs in North Wales than anyone will ever climb. Uh, so there's a huge amount to do here. It's just on a slightly lower scale than out in the Alps or out in Canada or the US or elsewhere in the world.
1: I don't think that's a bad thing. Sometimes to me, the most beautiful setting is tarnished by you know, the amount of people or the amount of hype around it or the, or just uh, the amount of development even. And finding a smaller, off-the-beaten-path, a, a smaller... My favorite mountains I've ever climbed have been smaller than the biggest ones around that area just because I'm there alone, you know? And I'm sure that's the same sensation.
0: Yeah, um, and we've really got... You know, we're really becoming critically aware of that in North Wales at the moment because so many people in the UK because of Brexit and Covid are now holidaying in the UK and they want to get out of the cities and into the countryside and they go to the places that are most obvious and easiest to learn about so Most of the people who come to North Wales for the first time will go to some of the big adventure park places where it's like pay and play adventure. And then they'll go and climb up Snowdon, which is our biggest mountain, three and a half thousand feet. And it's just got a huge, great big like footpath, gravel footpath all the way to the top and back down again. And on a busy summer's day, you can have hundreds and hundreds of people on the summit waiting for their summit selfie. And. You know, those real honeypot areas are getting massive traffic, but then you can be five kilometres away on a different peak and have the summit to yourself for an hour without anyone else turning up there. And, you know, there's a there's another area of North Wales called the Clwydian Range, which is a smaller range of sort of hills and mountains, and very few tourists go there. So as a local, you can always find an empty spot. doesn't matter how good the weather is or how busy the area is. There's always somewhere to, to get outside and to jump into some water or hike or bike or climb. It's a good spot.
1: What is the A list of things to do? And I always go for the B or C list because <laughs> with the lack of, of, you know, crowds to fight and whatnot, it becomes the new A list. It becomes the most, Impactful experience there, and now there's obviously things at the top of the list that are obviously some things are popular for a good reason. They're they're incredibly gorgeous or incredibly just amazing. But um, when you really get into it, and you want that piece and want to get away from folks. That that's a it's 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 the same exact case here in the states. So so when did it become uh, for you a, a, a way to make money? Because you're a professional mountain bike guide. <laughs>
0: Well, I have been, I'm, I'm not anymore. I've moved away from it a little bit, but, um, I, I, I still run my own mountain bike coaching and guiding company. I set that up in January of 2010 and I've sort of wound things down over the last couple of years, um, through, I went back to university and did a master's and I've decided to head in a slightly more environmental conservation science sort of direction. Um, but I still run my business Mostly because I've got a handful of fantastic clients who I do trips with every year and who I just love running trips for. But um, I I got into being a a mountain bike guide and an outdoor professional really by mistake. And that seems ridiculous considering I grew up in an area that is pretty well known for outdoor activities and my parents were outdoories. And I was one of those kids who did get to go on those summer camp things of climbing and biking and canoeing. So, you know, I'd met loads of outdoor instructors by the time I finished high school, but nobody had ever suggested to me that you could do it for a job. And so I don't know if you guys have like a careers advisor who comes into school, but we do in the UK and you sit down with them and you fill out a questionnaire and they go, Oh, I suggest you become an architect or a, lawyer or a doctor or go and be a car mechanic and you know they've got a list of 40 jobs and and that's all you're ever going to get and being an outdoor activity instructor or guide wasn't on that list and so it just wasn't in my my world view I had no idea it was an option and after I finished school I sort of tried to do the academic thing and I just wasn't focused on it I was having too much fun riding bikes and I ended up wandering into the pub one afternoon and bumping into a friend of my stepdad's who was um, he was on the local mountain rescue team. And he was also a lecturer on an outdoor education program in the local college. And I sat down and got a pint, and got chatting to him because I would known him for a couple of years. And uh, he said to me, um, you know, our outdoor ed course this year, it's the first time in 15 years it hasn't been fully subscribed by the Easter holidays. And uh, I can't believe there's still space on it. And as he said that, he looked up at me and he went, "How come you've never done our outdoor ed course?" <laughs> and 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 I just said to him, "Well, what's what is it?" And, and he explained to me what the course was about. And you know, I was sort of 19 years old, and um, basically my life revolved around working in a bike shop, riding bikes, and drinking beer. And that was that was it. And he explained the course to me, and he said you'd be perfect on it, but If you take a place on that course, you've got to take it seriously and don't waste that place because if you're just going to ride bikes and get boozed up and mess around on the course, then you should let somebody else who's going to take it seriously have that place. And, um, you know, I I went away and a couple of days later I thought, let's go into college and find out a bit more about this course. And I got in and it sounded awesome. And Mike's words just rang in my head. I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it properly. And so I signed up and two years later at the end of the course, I'd, I'd absolutely aced it. You know, I got straight distinctions really without putting in very much effort. I didn't booze it up and mess around at all. I worked hard enough, but I hadn't had to work really hard. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever found anything that I was just so into that it didn't feel like hard work. Um so yeah, so I did. I did two years at college, and then off the back of that, I went to university and studied outdoor and environmental education at university. And I would like to claim that I did that because it was the the, the good career choice and the academic decision. But in reality, I figured that three years at uni meant another three years of not having to get a full time job. So right. I could ride. So, so I could ride. I could ride my bike a bit more. So uh, yeah, so I went to uni and rode my bike a lot, and 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 very similar story at university. You know, I got to I got to halfway through my second year at university and looked at my grades and and went, ah oh, man, if I put in five percent more effort, I'm going to get a first class degree out of this. And if I keep cruising where I am, I'm still going to get a very good degree out of this. And um, yeah, I just I knew at that point that was the point at which I had to knuckle down and and actually work to get the grade that you know i was i was capable of um and i came out of university with a really good degree and a stack of outdoor guiding qualifications and i'd taken every opportunity i could to get work experience or to go and freelance and so straight out the door i was into the world of being an outdoor guide
1: i i love to uh Love to ask this to folks who are guides and, and do this for a living, do adventure sports for a living. H- how did it change your relationship with the thing you loved? Did it, did it enhance it or did it become something you had to do?
0: <laughs> I think that I staved off the inevitable departure out of the industry by being multi-skilled. So, um, you know, in, in the UK, I guide, hill walking and rock climbing and canoeing and kayaking and mountain biking and caving and you know, archery and, and all all sorts of canyoning and coasteering all sorts of different activities and because of that variety it meant that i was always doing something different 2017 i think was one of those years where i i just decided i was going to do as much work on my bike as i could and so Every job that came in, if it was biking, I said yes to. It. If it wasn't biking, I kind of went yeah and hold held off until the last minute and then then did it. And so I spent 120 days working on my bike that year, and then another 65 70 days doing my own personal riding and bike packing trips. And by the end of October, I remember I did a five day guiding course um, up in North Wales, and I got off my bike on the Friday afternoon and threw it in the back of the van. I went, I don't ever want to see that thing again. And on the Saturday morning, sold it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so um, the years where I did too much of the same thing, um, yeah, I just, it, you do get sick of it. But yeah. being multi-skilled, you're always able to just flip it up and go do something else for your playtime. Or, you know, the, the following year, 2018, I did hardly any mountain bike guiding, which meant that by the middle of the year, I was really stoked to be riding my bike again just for myself.
1: Fantastic. So I know we kind of are on this podcast, and I know the story of this podcast is we're, we're, we're going to get to that. Um, but I, yeah, I'd love to honestly, if folks probably see some sort of indication or heard about it in the intro or in the title of the podcast, but don't know exactly where it begins. But I want to know, like, what went on in your response to it through Adventure Sports and how that how that changed you?
0: Um. So. I mean, Catherine and I worked together, and we met in 2010. We you know, we got together as a couple. We got engaged in 2011. We got married in 2012. And in 20, the I think it was the end of 2012, I was having a really, really tough time at work. Um, we just, I have worked with... Um, sort of inner city youth and children at risk and so it was a really high high stress high conflict working environment um and it just sort of tipped me over the edge to the point where I, I ended up being signed off work um for mental health reasons for about three months and through that period um once she'd sort of given me the time of just lying in bed and and not really doing very much eventually she just sort of turned around to me and said you need to start going riding your bike again if you do nothing else for your day you need to get out of the house and go and ride your bike and so that was what I did I just go out and just ride my bike just in the local area in the woods in the park nothing nothing serious but just got out and ride my bike and after a couple of months of doing that I got back to work and felt a lot better um and then the end of 2013 um Catherine was diagnosed with stage three um, melanoma. So skin cancer and stage three is like 95% survival rate curable Um, melanoma is one of those cancers where if it's stage one, stage two, stage three, you're all good. They're just going to do a bit of surgery and you're going to go home and they'll do checks on you and, and keep an eye on you. And, and that's that.
1: Was there any lead up to that or, or any sort of indication? Was there a lot of time in the sun? That's a lot really typical. I'm very fair complexed, So it's something I, you know, have to yeah. keep
0: in mind a lot. No, not at all. Not at all. She'd had a mole on her back uh, when she was a teenager that um, a doctor had removed when she was 18. And that had been, um, that'd been sent off for tests. And I forget the name for it now, but that was, you know, they knew there was something wrong with that mole, but they were like, yeah, but it's fine. It's been removed. And we subsequently found out that the doctor hadn't removed enough of the tissue around that mole. And so it had just sat there and lain dormant in her for for the, the subsequent almost 20 years um and in that year the, those years 2012 2013 um uh, the organization we worked for went through a merger and then it went through a restructure and I think just the amount of stress that she was under at work I ended up leaving leaving the centre. Um, in, in 2013 but she stayed on and I think just the amount of stress that she was under just allowed her immune system to get suppressed to the point where the cancer was able to sort of spring up and when she went to the doctors initially about it they just said it was an infection because uh, she found a, a lump in her armpit in her lymph nodes and they just said it was an infection and gave her antibiotics and sent her away And and this went on for a couple of months and eventually they reluctantly sent her for a biopsy and the biopsy result was yeah this is this is actually cancer mm. you need to get in and we need to operate on you and you know whenever the c word gets dropped um you know your your whole sort of your vision goes a little bit funny and and your whole world sort of has a little bit of a shudder and you go yeah but it's okay this is stage 3 this is curable it'll all be all right and you know yeah, I remember it was the 27th of December that we got told by the hospital and we um, we had to break the news to her daughter um, a couple of days later and and it was that whole, do we do we tell her before New Year's and then try and have a bit of a celebration to lift her back up afterwards or do we let her have the Christmas, New Year period and then break the news to her in the New Year and and just start the beginning of the year on a downer. Um, you know, and, and Alice was... Oh, she'd been 12, 13, yeah, 13 at that point. So a real rubbish age to find out that your mum's got cancer. But um, like I say, at that point, it was it was curable. And they operated on her and then they did some more biopsies and stuff. And in May 2014, we found out that it had spread to her lungs. And with melanoma, as soon as it's spread and gone to stage four, that's basically right. We'll keep you alive for as long as we can, but you're going to die. Um, there's almost a zero percent survival rate on stage four melanoma. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we we'd read up, we'd done our study and our research, and all the way through that five months of you know between the initial diagnosis and and getting the the stage four diagnosis in may the whole way through it we've just been saying to ourselves it doesn't matter it's okay it's only stage three you're gonna live and then we we sat down in the doctor's room and got told it was stage four and both instantly knew what it meant and you know they try and lift you and they try and tell you but it's okay you know there's new treatments coming online all the time and but we both knew there and then what it really meant um and what was how was partic- he feeling at that point physically no, fine. fine fine
1: i was going to yeah, say was it obvious or was fine. it no. you know nothing seems to be going on
0: no no you would have had no idea if you'd met her in the street not a clue um uh and what was really crazy about so it, it was either the 4th or the 6th of may uh 2014 and it was that day That evening, I was having to leave home to go and get the ferry across to Ireland to go and lead a four day um, road cycling trip with a a group of private clients who they still come back and do trips with me now. I I did a trip for them last month. Um, But, yeah, we had the diagnosis in the afternoon and then we drove back to our flat. And as I was sitting on the bed, throwing clothes into a bag to pack to go away for five days trying to just compute everything that had gone on. Um and yeah, that I I I phoned my my parents um and and, and I phoned my stepdad. My my mum still worked, still works now. Um but my stepdad had retired at that point, And so I phoned them up and just said to my stepdad um I I need you to come on this trip with me. And um it's one of the only times I've I've ever called him up and asked him for something and there was no questions no ifs no buts no anything it was just yep okay I'll see you at the ferry and he packed his bags and he came and sat in the passenger seat of my van as we drove around Ireland for five days just to I guess just because I'd asked him to just to keep an eye on me just to to help me get through those that initial that first week and yeah, I guess I called him because I didn't trust myself to be by myself uh, for the first sort of two days of that trip before the clients arrived. Um, and that, that afternoon as I was packing my bags, um, I remember Catherine came in and sat on the bed next to me and held my hand and said to me, when this is all over, I want you to find someone else and be happy again. And I got so angry with her because we both knew where it was going to end, but she was already saying it out loud. Um, So that was May 2014. And then she was very outwardly very well through her treatment um 2014 she spent a bit of time in hospital in 2015 um but she bounced back from that pretty quickly she continued working for most of her treatment time and into 2016 um you know in june 2016 we were on holiday together um going out walking and you know visiting nice little villages and stuff and then in july we tried to go away for another holiday and she went downhill and got to the point where she was sleeping for 23, 23 and a half hours a day. And she was still mobile then, um, when, when she woke up and then by August she was in a wheelchair 24 seven and could do very little for herself anymore. And by the middle of August, I, I, I took her into the hospice where she ended up dying. Um, the start of september
1: so uh the 9th of september 2016 my goodness i mean i don't you know I've, I, I can't even relate in a lot of ways just to how crazy that must have been that time having to work through all that and having to go take clients on a vacation on a holiday <laughs> during that time had to be just an absolutely just gut-wrenching process what, what what were some of the rocks in your life, or some of the pillars of your life that that kept you, at least sane, or or not, maybe not even sane? Maybe you weren't sane. sane. <laughs> what 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 kept you to, to to talk to me today? What kept you there?
0: I think my work was a huge part of it. Um, I had some fantastic colleagues, um, but also a huge number of my colleagues and and all of my clients had absolutely no idea what was going on at home. Um, I didn't tell most people, um, Catherine was an incredible support to me and, you know, we partway through her illness, we moved back up to North Wales and we were around my family and my mum would just drop in sort of every day or every other day. and, And she was a huge support to me. And, um, some of my friends from, um, from when I was at university, you know, they were just absolute rocks and still are to this day. I've got I've got uh, a couple of best friends who I know I can phone any time of night or day and whatever is happening in my life, if I need them to pick up the phone or if I need them to drive for six hours across the country to come and pick me up or if I need to go and sleep on their lounge floor for a month. I know that the answer is yes, before I've even asked the question. And yeah, those people were incredible. Um, one thing that my mum came, I don't know where she found it from, but, but something that she started, um, really prescribing to, which I didn't really learn about until after, after Catherine had died. Um, but my mum's this, it was this concept where in, in times of major stress or, or trauma, like what we were going through. You have to imagine everybody as like a series of concentric circles. And the people who are in that inside circle are the people who are right in the core of the trauma. So that was Catherine and her daughter, Alice and I. The three of us, we were the ones who were right in the thick of having to live with that day in, day out. So we were in that inside circle. And the next circle out from us was the next nearest people. So Catherine's parents, and my parents and... Know, our best friends and then the next circle out from that was you know like my aunties and uncles and cousins and and as to the support network just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and when you're in that real state of trauma and and really high stress you give support inward in that series of concentric circles and you vent your stress and your pressure outward and you never do it the other way around because the people who are in the circle inside you, all they need is your support and your help, and they don't have any space or energy to help you get through your stress and your challenge in it. And I know finding out about that was a huge, a big thing for my mum, and that definitely got us through, even without realising it. That got us through. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of the trauma. And like I say, my work was a massive blessing to me. Um, I, I regret how much time I spent away from home through those years, but I'm also very conscious that if I hadn't have been away from home, essentially getting paid to play in the mountains, I would have been going insane. And, you know, I got paid to go on some incredible trips whilst whilst Catherine was at home or going through cancer treatments. And when things were really tough, she'd tell me and I'd go home. And when she had it covered and she could cope, she'd tell me to take the work and get out of there.
1: You know, bless the people that just step in, that are able to support and be there for folks. And, uh, I'm sure you have no idea what you can go through until you're, until you're kind of thrown into it. Um, (laughs) You don't want to. You definitely don't want to. What do you think it taught you being on the side of having to cover that up to to host clients and host, you know, take people on adventures that they're going to remember forever? Mm -hmm. Do you think it taught you anything about, you know, how you treat others or how you might not know what someone else is going through being being in that position yourself for so long?
0: Yeah, I think I think that I. I definitely think I learned a lot of that from it, but I also know that a huge number of my colleagues um, had a a massive, massive dose of that. Um, You know, at that time, I was sort of course directing um, outdoor adventure programs for, for adults and kids. And sometimes my staff team, I'd have 15 or 20 instructors working underneath me as we were delivering a course for the week. And, you know, the... I think it was maybe the the 18th of June, 2016. I was away working and and I'd been course directing three or four weeks of courses back to back and just going home on the weekends. And midweek on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, Catherine phoned me up and um, just said, I've got I've got a hospital appointment tomorrow and you need to be there. And that was all she said. And and I knew what that meant. It meant that she was expecting to go into hospital and to be told that there was no further treatment that was available to her. And there was nothing more that they could do. And so I sat down with my staff team. And, you know, out of the 15 of them who were there, um, only one knew what was going on at home. And I phoned I phoned the office and I said to the office, you know, this is what's going on. The, the senior management and all of the sort of the back end support crew, they all knew. But the instructors on the ground around me, they didn't because they didn't need to know that because they didn't, I didn't need them to behave any differently around me. I just needed them to do their job. Um, and so I phoned the office and I told them, look, I'm, I'm going to have to leave in the morning. Um, this is the situation we're in. I don't think I'm coming back this summer. Um, and I sat my staff team down. And, uh, you know, I, I just said to them, look, um, I'm really sorry. I have to leave the programme tomorrow morning and I won't be coming back for the rest of the season. And and this is why. And, you know, it's just an, an absolute bombshell when people get told that out of the blue. Um, and I went back and continued to work with a lot of those instructors later in the season and the following year. And... I know that it changed the way that they look at the, the staff team around them because I'd worked with them through three summers whilst Catherine was ill at home and never, never needed to tell them. Um, and you can't be in a total state of trauma for three years. You have to find a way of getting up and going to work and you can't, You know, you can't spend every working day telling people that your wife is dying of cancer and and all of the emotions that you're going through with it. Sometimes you just need some normality. You just need to be able to pick up your rucksack and put a smile on for your group and go out into the hills and give them a good day. And if you are not able to do that, then you're going to be in a really, really bad way because you're going to have three years of continuous grief. Um. And, you know, some people managed to find that slightly subtler balance where there is a little bit of it in their daily lives all the way through. Whereas for me, I just had to go away Monday to Friday and immerse myself in my work and enjoy all of the playtime in the hills I could get and then go home on the weekend and live with, you know, the real truth of the, the situation that Catherine and I were in.
1: And, and speaking of grief you mentioned that uh once some some time passed and that initial grief w- was was passed you you grabbed life by the horns was your response <laughs> um, yeah. what did that mean to you and why do you think that was your response
0: oh 100% that was my response because um ever since that experience of you know being by Catherine's side um, through those years and her uh, eventual passing, um, my like mantra has been: I didn't survive that to not survive this,
1: mm.
0: because that was without a doubt the hardest thing I have ever, ever survived, ever gone through. And it was a million times harder than the hardest bike ride I've ever been on or the grimmest weather I've ever had to deal with in the mountains. You know, it's just, you can't even compare them. And so now when anything arduous or difficult comes along, it's just like, yeah, but this is nowhere near as hard as some of the stuff you've survived and got through. So just crack on. Um, And life is short and you've no idea how much time you've got. You know, Catherine was 40, and I was 33 when she died. Um, Alice, her daughter, was 15, six days before her 16th birthday. And by by many people's standards, Catherine had a good innings. You know, there's a lot of people out there who never get to see their 40th birthday. And, and all the way through her illness, whenever we started to grumble about the situation we were in, we'd just say, yeah, but this could be a lot worse. We could be living through this whilst living in a migrant refugee camp, you know, wherever, on the Syrian border or in France or in Africa. You know, this could be a lot, lot worse. Um, I mean, we are so blessed that we have the NHS in the United Kingdom. Um, One of Catherine's treatments was £90,000 a dose And she had three doses. And if we'd have lived in the US, you know, unless we'd have had incredibly good health insurance, which I don't think we would ever have been able to afford. You know, I was a a dirtbag outdoor instructor. Um,
1: We didn't have a lot. We didn't have a lot
0: of money. (laughs) You wouldn't
1: have had good health insurance.
0: quarter, quarter, Quarter of a million pound bill for cancer treatment. And that was just one round. She had three rounds. Um, and I never had to think about that. I never had to worry about that.
1: My goodness. You know, it is, it is relative. And I'm sure that that, you, you, you put that mental toughness to work. I will say that. What, what did you do? What, what were the, some of the adventures you started doing and how do you think it helped you through the grief? Because you'd mentioned before that. Uh, that depression or whatever you were going through before that, that when Catherine encouraged you to go mountain biking, that it started making you feel better. We're a huge proponent that a balanced life includes adventure sports. So how did it help you get through this as well?
0: Yeah. So at some point in late 2016, I realized that I had a, a long dark winter ahead of me with not very much work because the adventure guiding season in the UK goes very quiet over the winter and I needed stuff to look forward to. And all of a sudden, I was, you know, early 30s and financially stable enough and had zero commitments anymore and zero responsibilities anymore. And it was my opportunity to go and do all of the, the silly, crazy, outdoory stuff that, excuse me, that um, that I'd ever wanted to. So. Late 2016, um, I just started looking at this empty calendar for 2017 and just being like, right, you know, now's the time. Um, and a guy who had been a client on a on a mountain bike course up in North Wales got back in touch with me and said, you know, I, I want to do an awesome trip somewhere. Um, you know, one of those like once in a lifetime trips. What can you organize for me? I'm thinking about maybe mountain biking in Iceland. And I was like, yep, 100%. We can go do a biking trip in Iceland. It'll be epic. It'll probably be a pretty small group. There's going to be like three, four of us maybe. It's a pretty niche sell. And, you know, there was only him. He didn't have any friends who wanted to go and do a trip like that at that time. And and I started planning it and was like, oh, this is going to be epic. And then I was also getting really into pack rafting at the time. And someone had just said, you know, oh, I'd love to go and do a backcountry pack rafting trip and i was looking at photos of incredible places all over the world and and the lofoten islands were one of those that just kept catching me and so i called si up and i said to him i know you wanted to go mountain biking in iceland but how'd you fancy going pack rafting and hiking across the lofoten islands and he was like i literally have no idea what that is or what it (laughs) entails but it sounds ace let's do it and then about 20 minutes after the call, he sent me a message saying, I just Googled it. Is that place for real? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so the the two of us and another friend of mine, we went out to, yeah, we went out to Lofoten for 10 days in June uh, in the mid, in the middle of summer. So 24 hour daylight. And we did a, an epic packrafting and hiking trip. And I got asked to go and do a couple of weeks mountain bike guiding workout in Germany that summer. So I went out and did that. And, um, I've got back in touch with my dad and he was living out in, um, in Denton in, um, Texas at the time. And so I, I planned a trip to go out and see him in the November. Um, my mum and I went on a whale watching trip in Norway in, uh, in late October. And I just, I just started booking all of those trips that was like, I just need to do this. I need, there's no excuses. I just need to do this. Um, and oh, I had eight days mountain biking in British Columbia um, after I left my dad's, and oh, wow. that 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 place is something else, isn't it? it just <laughs> Squamish. Um, if you've been, you know. If you haven't, you need to go. It's, there's um, nothing
1: like it. Nothing. There like is it out nothing there.
0: like it. <laughs> nothing. But the the big trip um, that you know since I since I've been about thirteen or fourteen. I don't even know where it originally came from, but since a kid, I'd just always sort of had ticking in the back of my head. One day I'm going to go and ride my bike across Iceland. And I got to 2017 and realized there was no more one day. It was now I'm going to go and ride my bike across Iceland. Um, and so I booked the flights and, you know, I had a, I had a couple of sponsors really helped me out. Um, I got a, a, a tire deal and some dehydrated food um, sponsorship on it. But, you know, 95% of the trip I self-funded and I just booked my flights and bought the map. And um, oh, if anyone is into geeking out over maps, just go buy a map of Iceland, even if you're never going to go there because there is some <laughs> cool oh, stuff on that map. Yeah,
1: I'm going to have to get one. <laughs> I see, love maps.
0: Uh, when you see a map and you're like, what is that symbol for? And then you go and look at the key and it says Giza. You're like, wow, that's cool. <laughs> um, and and yeah, mid mid August 2017, I flew out to Reykjavik, and um, put my bike together, got the bus out onto the south coast of Iceland, and went down to the DC10 wreck, which um, is infamous on Instagram, and put my tent up, and that was where my my riding my biking trip across Iceland, finally after whenever it had been probably 20 years, um, finally started and yeah. So what was the
1: goal? What was your plan? Were you, were you biking on roads? Was it off road and how long were you planning hmm. to do it? And and, and what were some of the highlights you were going to see?
0: Yeah. So I, I'd given myself 10 days in country, um, basically sandwiched in between guiding in, doing that bike guiding in Germany and having a whole load of bike packing trips to lead in, in Scotland. So I had a 10 day window and I was just like, boom, going riding across Iceland and, you know, I was going to ride across the country. So I was doing a coast to coast and the, you know, there's, there's various coast to coast options you can do in Iceland, but the one that stood out to me and made the most sense is, um, is, is a, a north to south or a south. I did a south to north. Um, crossing all the way across Iceland through the interior. And um, roads in Iceland, there's a little bit of tarmac in the cities and the ring road around, around the, the island is tarmac. But everything in the interior is gravel. It's, it's a whole other world of gravel. It's like nothing I'd ever experienced before. But um, before I got to the gravel, I decided that I was going to go and ride through an area called the Lávga Trail. And that uh, that runs more or less from the south coast um, over to a valley uh, called Porsmork, and then from Porsmork up and through to Landmannalaugar. And Landmannalaugar is one of those sort of places that lots of people in Iceland will go to because it's got these just incredible um, volcanically formed sort of rolling hills and jagged little peaks, and there's lava flows, and there's insane amount of different colors and there's hot springs and you can go and swim in the rivers and be in really nice hot water and camp there and you know it's a real it's a real hub but it's also the end of the the trail and then from from landman lauga i just headed straight through the the center um on the gravel trails all the way up and my end goal was to get to a town called husavik up on the north coast and the reason I was heading for Husavik is because that is the, the main hub of the whale-watching industry in, um, in Iceland. And I love whales almost as much as I love bikes. So I was like, yeah, sick, man. I'm going to go ride my bike across Iceland. Then I'm going to go whale-watching. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure most people have, have seen – uh, yeah. anyone who's into mountain biking and bikepacking will have seen a trip report of riding, riding across Iceland. Lots and lots of people have done it. And um, I think most of the people out there did a, a better job of researching and listening to other people's points of view than I did. Um, I literally just got the map and went, I want to go from there to there. That looks like a cool way of doing it. That's it. Trip planned. Um, and a, a friend of mine, actually the guy who came out to... The third guy who came out to Lofoten with me, he had been and hiked the Lavka trail a couple of years before, and he's also a bike packer and a mountain biker, and we've done a lot of trips together. And and you know, even he'd said to me, the Lavka trail is going to be pretty pretty tough on a bike, and it's going to be extremely tough on a fully laden bike. And you know, I was doing the trip totally solo, um, totally self supported, so I had ten days worth of food loaded up with me. Um, I was riding a, a fully rigid. 29 plus surly Krampus um, with the whole load of bike packing luggage and stuff on it and yeah the lavga trail is is tough is very tough um, there's some incredibly technical riding on it there's some incredibly steep both up and down there's a couple of points you're crossing huge snow fields um, you have to wade through a couple of rivers um, there's one bit where you ride through a field of obsidian, and obsidian is just that inky black rock, volcanic rock, that is literally razor sharp when it gets gets fractured and broken into pieces. And I remember riding through that obsidian field, looking at all of these shards of rock, thinking, I don't want them to touch my tires, but I don't want to fall off and for them to touch my knees even more. Right. <laughs> and yeah, I mean really iceland is is not a place you can put into words and when you see the photos it's one of the few places in the world i have ever been where it is as or inspiring or more than it is in the photos and you know the tourism industry are very very good at taking good photos on sunny days and making them look better but in iceland they're not capturing it as well as they could do um It is jaw-droppingly beautiful, interspersed with huge areas of really quite bland, dull nothingness. So there's just huge expanses of just gravel for as far as the eye can see. And so you can ride for hours and hours and hours, and it feels like you're riding through a gravel quarry. And then you will get to a hot spring that is the most beautiful hot spring you have ever seen in your life. Wow.
1: There's definitely, when I see a picture of some landscape and I'm like, that's Iceland. I feel like you (laughs) just know it when you see it. I don't know if it's the way the roads are designed or it's like this rolling. uh, There's something unique about it. And I'm sure that even the most dull landscapes have a unique beauty about them there. You're not bored being there is what I'm saying.
0: Not at all. And, and and it's small enough that it is constantly changing.
1: Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode.
0: You know, I I spent six days riding all the way across the country. And you know, the first day I did twenty kilometers on my bike um the second day i did 30 kilometers the third day i did 60 kilometers and then the last three days were 120k a day um and the distances give you an idea of the technicality of the trails that i was riding but yeah even on those last three days where i was doing much bigger mileage i might be sitting on my bike riding through just gravel for three hours but then you would get something that just blew you away and you completely were not expecting and you'd spend 20 minutes or half an hour there and then you'd get back on your bike and you'd keep riding again um yeah i mean when i suppose my recollection of iceland as well is also very much through the the tint of what was going on mentally and emotionally whilst i was there and so I would definitely talk to a couple of other people who've been to Iceland as well and and get their feedback on it Um, because my mental state and where I was at in life was a very unique and very odd place to be. And I think much like my planning of the route, um, I'd just sort of gone, this is what I'm going to do, go and do it and not thought about it anymore. And, And I also hadn't thought about is really doing a solo wilderness bikepacking trip a year in the anniversary of taking your wife into the hospice that she died in is that really a clever thing to be doing and you know now looking back on it I go no that maybe wasn't the sharpest idea you ever had <laughs> and and certainly some of my friends at the time were a little bit like oh man, I think Tom's opening himself up for a whole world of misery here. That's going to be hard. And riding your bike through the interior of Iceland, if you are in physically and mentally good shape, is going to be tough. It's an extremely hard place to go riding bikes. And I was physically okay because I was guiding quite a lot, but uh, I wasn't 120k a day, multiple day bike fit. And mentally, I definitely wasn't. (laughs) in quite the place that you should be for a trip like that.
1: Do you think that you had any, I mean, in a strange way, do you feel like you had any sort of advantage?
0: Oh yeah. I mean, completely when I was in those points of incredible difficulty. And I mean, on, on the last day I'd set my bike up perfectly for the trip. I'd done all my homework. I knew what I was doing. I was very experienced bikepacking packing rider by that point, but I, the saddle I was riding on, I'd had for eight years. And it had just always been like old faithful, um, the trusty saddle. And, and, and it failed on that trip. Um, it got to the end of its life. And it got to the end of its life on day five. And I still had 120 kilometers to ride. And for that entire final day, I spent five minutes sat on the saddle pedaling, five minutes stood up pedaling, and then five minutes off the bike walking and pushing. And I just repeated that cycle four times an hour for the entire day and that's an incredible amount of discomfort and, and pain and struggle but the whole way through that there was two things going through my head there was one you didn't survive that what you went through last year to not survive this and then the other one there's a guy in the uk who used to own a bike shop called charlie the bike monger and charlie makes stickers. That are a little bit more out there and um, a little bit more humorous, but maybe not towing the line quite as much as they should do. And so, um, you know, some of Charlie's stickers are like "I break for cake," and my um, my drinking club has a cycling problem. Right, really but right. <laughs> yeah, but one of Charlie's stickers just says, "What would Lance do?" What would Lance and do? What would Lance do?
1: You know, he's one of our athletic brewing uh, athletes.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> he well, loves athletic. <laughs> that, that sticker was on the top tube of my bike exactly at the point where my foot swung over my top tube every time I got on or off my bike across the entire of Iceland. And I got on and off my bike a lot as I crossed Iceland. And so every damn time I got back on my bike, I'd glance down, to swing my foot over, and just see, what would Lance do? <laughs> and, and all I could think was, keep going and then write a book about it.
1: <laughs> there you go. That's, so, yeah, that's what he did. Keep going. So,
0: so those were it. the those were the two mantras that got me across Iceland. You didn't survive that to not survive this. And what would Lance do? Keep going and write a book about it.
1: <laughs> my goodness, that's... <sighs> Oh man, that is too funny! Golly, well, yeah. you know, doing something, and I know you've done bigger trips. 10 day days—it's crazy how life-changing an experience can be in in a week and a half. You know, um, yeah. y- you think you need months or years um, to do an adventure, but really, some of my most impactful adventures that I tell all the time were days, mere days, um, yeah, or weeks. And uh, you know, having done something that you set out to do and had such a long build-up to twenty years. What did it feel like to finish that?
0: To be honest, I think it was just relief; it was over. Hmm. Um, yeah, getting emotionally getting across Iceland was infinitely harder than the physical of getting across Iceland, and the physical was pretty tough. So it was just utter utter relief. Um, you know, on, on the first day of my ride, I was. Going up a big climb, and I saw four bikes coming down towards me, and they stopped for a chat. And it was four riders um, from British Columbia, all very good, very handy riders on big full sus trail bikes, and um, and they just stopped like rabbit in the headlights, looking at me, yeah. and were just like, "What? What are you doing?" I was like, "I'm riding my bike through to to Husevic. and they were like, "No, you can't. You, you can't ride that bike on this trail." And I was like, yeah, sure I can, it'd be fine. And they were like, no, seriously, I I don't think you can ride that bike through. You know, we've just ridden the trail heading south. We know what's coming. We don't think you can get that bike through. We struggle to get our bikes through and we're not loaded. You know, my, my bike weighed 40 kilos, my bike and all my gear on it. And um wow. and they were like, just just turn around, come down with us and you can get a ride in our pickup truck around the campsite, and then you know, you'll probably be able to ride the next day from there. And so I had that opportunity, you know, two hours into the start of my trip to just go, yeah, all right, take the easy route. And I didn't, I was just like, no, no, it'll be, it'll be fine. Like oh, if you're sure, man, but I really don't think you should be going that way. And, and off I went and I carried on. And
1: was that, was it, I, was it as bad as they said, or were you like, okay, this is, oh,
0: it is hard, but well, there was, there was one section where it was a really badly eroded um, sort of gravel ridge line and the footpath was maybe 18 inches wide but it had a series of really steep loose steps going down to it that were far too steep to roll the bike down so I had to pick the bike up and carry up my shoulders and as I was going down these steps and across this this ridge I you know, I had a 400 foot drop off each side of me that if i'd have dropped the bike or if i'd have gone it was loose gravelly scree. it was 400 foot in each direction um and then a bit further after that there was a you know a, a flight of steps that had been built out of rocks all the way down into this beautiful section of trail that took me down to the campsite but again it was it was just that the it was so massively consequential you know a uh, 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 a puncture at the wrong time or a pedal strike at the wrong time if you went off the trail your chances of survival weren't great and you would definitely have been in an extremely bad way and you know i was riding this solo um nobody would really notice that i was missing for another eight or nine days because although i was never far from other hikers or 4 by 4 drivers or campers there was never anybody expecting me to get somewhere and therefore would identify that I wasn't back. The The only people who were expecting me anywhere were my clients in Scotland 10 days later. And it would only be then that people would ask the question of where's Tom. Yeah. So it was incredibly difficult riding and it's not a place to take a fully laden bike back and rig. It would be great on a, on a trail bike, you know, and they were having their bags sort of luggage shuttled around for them but even on a even on a trail bike they're massive challenging epic days out on the bike with brutal climbing and incredibly technical descending um so yeah they were they were right it wasn't a place to take a bike packing rig but i took it there anyway um and i was blessed with the weather you know i had sunshine the entire way across iceland which is almost unheard of to have seven consecutive days of sunshine. And I had a tailwind for the first five days, no, the first four days. And on the fifth day, I met a guy riding down the, down this gravel road towards me the other way. And and then stopped to have a chat with him. I only saw maybe four cyclists on the whole trip and um, stopped and had a chat with him. And he was doing a much bigger sort of tour, but all of tarmac and gravel roads. He'd been out 16 days and he'd ridden in, a, in an easterly direction, in a northerly direction, in a northwesterly, in a westerly, in a southerly and in a southwesterly direction. So he'd ridden most points of the compass. And in 16 days, he'd had a headwind every single day. <laughs> and 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 I just said to this guy, I was like, I so hope for you that the wind turns and that you get a tailwind very, very soon. And he still had like another six or eight days of his trip he was doing a massive grand tour all the way around and and as he set off heading south and i carried on heading north about 20 minutes after he'd left me i felt this faint whisper of breeze and i went huh i got a headwind like oh it's a really gentle breeze it feels like nothing to me but it'll feel epic to him and over the next four hours that gentle breeze built and built and built and I was riding across the interior of Iceland, heading towards this 22-kilometre descent down to the Ring Road in the north. And, you know, all the way across, i just been like, I know that the, you know, the end of day Day five is just going to be this huge, great, big 22k blasting descent all the way down to the road. It's going to be incredible. And as I eventually got to the edge where literally, you know, the view of the the north coast of Iceland comes in and you can see the end goal, even though it's still, I don't know, 30, 40 kilometers away. um, I sort of rolled over the lip and this headwind had become so strong that I put a couple of pedal strokes in, rolled off to start my descent and just rolled to a stop. And the headwind was just stopping me Gosh, dead in my tracks. That is
1: the, that's the worst. That's the most <laughs> frustrating is when you can't even roll downhill. You, you gotta couldn't even downhill. roll downhill.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I remember getting off my bike at one point just to try and get a break from this, this wind and lying down uh, next to this rock to try and get out of the wind because it was the only wind I could find and the rock was only big enough to hide my head behind. So I put my head behind it to trick myself into thinking that I was hiding from the wind. But the whole <laughs> of the rest of my body was just lying out in the road, getting whipped by the wind still.
1: Like an ostrich with its uh, with its head buried. Yep. You're just like, oh, I'm yep. fine. I'm fine. I can do yep. this.
0: <laughs> exactly. exactly. So that was the last day, huh? That was the penultimate day. I ended up having to break that final descent into an, an overnight halfway down because it, it was just taking me so long to get down. And wow. the, the, the next day, the last day, which is the day I was just riding for five minutes, sat, riding for five minutes, stood, pushing for five minutes. Um, I eventually got out to the road. And I think the waterfall is called Godafoss. Um, huge, real big sort of touristy, um, tourist trap waterfall up on the the ring road and i pulled into the the car park there and and there's all these benches and everything overlooking the waterfall and i just collapsed off my bike and all the benches were were full so i just sat on the floor and leant against this wooden post absolutely shot and i must have looked pretty hideous um and after about five minutes this american woman just walked over to me with uh, a handful of fresh grapes and an apple and just looked at me and went, I'm sorry, I don't have anything else for you, but you look like you could really do with this. And she just handed me these grapes and this apple. And I one of the only times in my life I've been actually speechless. I couldn't conceive how to thank her enough because I'd just been on dehydrated meals for six days and, you know, and on a real emotional roller coaster for six days. And all I'd been dreaming of for the previous two days was grapes. and she just handed me a grapes, bunch of grapes, really? And yeah, and I, I just I just needed that moisture, that fresh, that fruity, that clean, that moisture. And she handed them to me, and I must have just inhaled them. And she just sort of stood back and and looked. And I was like, those were the best things I've ever eaten. Thank you so much. Um, and a couple of minutes later, someone else and someone had seen her do that. And they came over and were like, do you want a cheese sandwich? It's like, I would love a cheese sandwich. And and in that <laughs> in, in that moment, I just had this like faith in humanity just suddenly restored. Because, um, yeah, I had been so, I, I mean, it was only six days. It really wasn't a long period of time. But. I was so emotionally so alone as I was doing that ride to just for my first exposure to other people to be those two acts of, of generosity. Um, I don't know if those people have got any memory of the, the crusty, dirty biker they saw in that car park at Godafoss, But, you know, I will never forget the, the act of kindness that, that they showed me.
1: Imagine, you know, this American woman maybe forgot she even did that. And you're telling thousands of people that story right now about <laughs> some grapes. You know, it yeah. goes to show you what really does matter in this world and ha- how big those 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 acts of kindness can be. Um, yeah. What What do you think the biggest lesson you learned from the experience um, since then? And also what what else have you um, done to process the grief and and, and move
0: forward since then? I think that trip really helped me process the grief. Um, I mean, you asked me before, how did it feel when the trip finished? And and I have this real vivid memory of somewhere on that descent road, just having to pedal downhill. Um, I could see the end game, but I was still having to work really hard to get there. And I just completely broke broke down. And I, I remember just tears streaming down my face as I was riding down down that mountain. Um, and, you know, I guess just feeling totally alone in the world because in, you know, in many ways I was, but then also I had this incredible network of, of support back home. So I also really wasn't alone. Um, yeah. I, I guess one of the things that I definitely came away from that bike trap bike packing trip um, was, it was something I'd always wanted to do, but at that point right then, I think I, I guess in 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 hindsight, it was a really good thing to go and do because it, it taught me so much and it gave me an experience like no other. But in the moment of finishing that trip, being sat in a campsite by myself, waiting to go on my whale watching trip the next day, I just thought to myself, you're an idiot. You shouldn't have come to Iceland mountain biking by yourself. You should have gone to the Alps with your Enduro bike and a bunch of your mates and gone and hit some incredible gnarly trails and had pizza and beer in the evenings and had loads of good friends around you. That's what you should have done when you were, you know, going through an anniversary of grief. That's where you should have been, having the support of your friends around you and also just having fun. And I think that was a big turning point in my personal biking career. You know, since then, partly for that reason and partly um, the following January, uh, January 2018, I had a paragliding accident and broke my back. And that's really changed my ability to sit on bikes for long periods of time without being in a lot of discomfort. But since Iceland, I haven't done another really big bikepacking trip. And I think part of the reason that I haven't is because whilst I was there, I realized that a a lot of bikepacking trips can be very lonely. And sometimes, you know, if you're just in the thick of it with work and, and family and commitments and stress and people all the time, then some alone time is exactly what you need. But if alone time isn't exactly what you need, Sometimes just going and having some fun with your friends is really what you need. And so, in the in, you know, in the last four years, um, I've done a lot more of that. I've done a lot more of playing on my bike in the skate park. And you know, last year I bought a trials motorbike, which I've always wanted since a kid. And I just play on that. And I think a lot of my adventure now has become more about play. And you know, that type one fun rather than the type two fun or the type three fun. Um, And spending good time with friends and family and going for bike rides that finish with a barbecue on a beach and don't require every last ounce of physical and emotional energy you've got. It's just go for a blast in the woods and have a good time.
1: You know, I'm glad you're saying that. I, I think that's something I realized too, is not every experience has to be harrowing and emotionally exhausting and uh type two or type three fun like you mentioned type one fun is well it's fun (laughs) you know it's nice to (laughs) it's nice to have that it's like having a a treat you know it's not it doesn't have to be vegetables all the time you can have some candy every now and then
0: (laughs) you sure can yeah, I think there is so much ego in the outdoor adventure world mm-hmm. and there's so much hierarchy and, you know, for some reason we perceive that people who summit Everest are better in some way than people who just go and walk up their local hill, um, you know, every Saturday morning. And there's there's no greater good in in mountaineering. There's no, you know, there's no like greater being looking down and you going, oh, you are worthy because you have summited Everest and you are not <laughs> right. worthy because you just, you just walk the dog in the park. It's like, nah, sack that off. You know, it's, it's about getting outside and about enjoying what you're doing. And I've really become a believer in your physical, the physical condition that you're in just needs to be the physical condition you need to be in to do the things you want to do. It doesn't matter whether you're ripped and have got a six pack and abs or not. It matters that you are, you know, your weight and your physical fitness is enough that it doesn't restrict you from having good fun and outdoor healthy lifestyle with your friends and with your family.
1: Words of wisdom coming from somebody (laughs) that knows that is. (laughs) <laughs> that is so true, you know we we, we obviously hear, uh, you know, and hit not a lot, but we've had people with you know egos and 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 I know we all deal with it, but i I have to say my favorite my favorite people to talk to are the people that I don't know much about because they don't share it all the time or post it everywhere, and you you learn about them and discover them as you talk to them. And um it might not be the biggest adventure. in fact, it, it really just matters more about how they tell the story. Some of my favorite episodes are about the most mundane trips people have taken, but they make it so dang entertaining to listen to that it's, uh, that you realize that's what it's all about, how you tell the story and how you see it. Well, I, I I know we don't have time, but you, you mentioned breaking your back is, uh, (laughs) is that, that's a big deal.
0: Yeah, I was very lucky. I had a 50% compression of L4 vertebrae. Um, so, uh, yeah. It was just the front half, so no, no damage and no risk to the spinal cord. Um, so I spent a, a week lying in Queenstown Hospital um, laughing to myself with glee because I could still wiggle my toes. Um, and, and I spent four weeks, um, stranded out in New Zealand, waiting for my insurance company to repatriate me, lying to my mum via Facebook, telling her that I was just chilling out and having a nice time in New Zealand, not lying in a hospital bed because, uh, she'd said to me, I don't want to know if you're going paragliding, just ring me afterwards when you're safe. Well, I couldn't exactly do that because, um, <laughs> right. it was, it was afterwards, but I, I wasn't all that safe and well. So, yeah, I, I I broke news to her uh, in front of her when I got back to the UK a month later.
1: <laughs> you're like, Mom, I, I haven't, I'm just relaxing in this bed. <laughs> I haven't got up and I can't even get up now. So, oh my gosh. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't mean to, to joke about it. It's very serious. And that's something else you have to get through in the sense of coming to terms with, with what that means for your life. How, how is that? Are, are you all right? I mean, in the sense of. What are you able to do things now or is that pretty limiting? Yeah,
0: no, it, it, it's really I have nothing to complain about at all. Um, it's really it only restricts me from doing um, very static things or very mundane things. So I, you know, if I have to sit in a car and drive for eight hours straight, I really have to go for a run or ride my bike or do some yoga before and after that or I'm going to be in pain that mm. day and the next day and the day after um sea kayaking is is a struggle now because you just sat in in one fixed position for so long um road cycling is a struggle but you uh, know it's really not breaking my heart that um i i can't do very much of that anymore because it's much more fun being off-road um <laughs> yeah you can agree uh yeah and and like sitting in a, sitting at a desk um, for, for the whole day in the office. Um, that's not great, but you know, I just, I I have a stand up desk. Um, so no, I, I really have very little to complain about. Um, I think future bike packing trips will all have to be of the more more technical variety so that I'm stood up and out the saddle and sat down and moving around and and using my, my torso as well. uh, and not just sitting and spinning the legs Um, or just make
1: sure your seat's broken. (laughs)
0: i'm not doing that again or i i I bought a recumbent trike last year and i absolutely love that thing it is an absolute absolute blast i would love to do more stuff on that but um yeah life life at the moment is um is taking me in adventurous directions that involve less multi-day adventure
1: hey i uh I'm in that same boat, and I know a lot of the listeners are too you know it's it it might be a while for some bigger trips but it, it it does not mean adventure is isn't there it's 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 everywhere you want it to be it's right out your front door heck sometimes it's in the four walls of my house
0: um I don't know if you can bolt a little bit on at the end, but um I feel like I would like to give the context of where i'm where I'm at now because I've got a great woman in my life who's um really helping me and and we're moving forward in a new direction and in your podcast and some of the other podcasts that um uh i i've forgotten the name of it now but there was a podcast that you interviewed a woman who, who she runs a podcast they've really ha- they've really been helping me um sort of get a get a focus for for where life is going now
1: interesting yeah well absolutely yeah tell us tell us what's going on now what are you doing next
0: so, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm heading on a very different kind of journey and adventure now. Um, I've, I was very lucky three years ago to meet a fantastic woman, um, Nia. And she and I are expecting our first child in, uh, in December. So no less than three months away. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. Um, so yeah, that is a, a whole different kind of adventure. Um, a little bit more than 10 days across Iceland cause we've got a, a lifetime now of having a, a little human in our lives to, um, teach them the adventurous ways. Um, and, yeah, on a on a far, far smaller scale. Um, the other thing, the the little bit of adventure that I'm trying to do, I have never been any good at all at routine. And so my adventures have always been sporadic and different and big and wild and stuff. And I'm just trying to get out of bed every morning now and do, do half an hour of yoga every morning for a month. And that will help my back a lot. And it will help my headspace a lot. And that's the direction of adventure at the moment. But I've been massively inspired by some of the some of your podcasts that I've listened to. And I'm really looking forward to in the next couple of years to uh, start going bikepacking and start going camping and, and hiking with a, a curious, inquisitive little person.
1: <laughs> oh, man, Tom, that's awesome. Man, I can't tell you. Just... Same thing. Life was so sporadic. Life was just so spontaneous. And I'm two years into fatherhood. And I just had a a newborn about six weeks ago. So I've got, he's in the other room. And I'll have to say, man, two years in, terrible at routine. A lot of my fears, you know, there's times, there's times it's hard. But I, I, dude, I promise you, nothing's as hard as what you've gone through already through adventures and personal. Like it's, you can do any of this with a piece of cake. Um, It is hard, but I don't know about you, but I feel like life is so good in a couple directions before kids and when I was doing exactly what I wanted to all the time. Now it's less of that, but every wheel of the spoke is more balanced to where there's (laughs) 10 to 15 aspects of life that are really good. Nothing is extreme necessarily and nothing is kind of an outlier. It's all balanced in... It's a beautiful thing right now. I don't think it, you know it won't stay like that forever, of course. But that's the only piece of you know advice or reflection I can give you as someone who's you know very similar to you in a lot of ways. It's routine still new to me two years in, but that balance has been a really incredible thing. There's times where I'm like, man, I really want to kind of do something crazy, but you also yeah. you're also hesitant to disrupt the balance because you 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 enjoy it so much and there's so much so many aspects of life that are really beautiful now. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm certainly looking forward to it, and and I guess a, a two-year-old is probably getting to the point where they're starting to become really inquisitive about the world around them and adventure and play. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that bit. My uh, my partner is probably sick of me looking at cargo bikes and bike <laughs> and, and, and bike packing rigs with child seats on the back. Yes, cause she's like baby isn't even here yet that right. is not the stuff that we need at the moment we need a child seat and that's right <laughs> we need and we need a cot and i'm like no i'm sure we need a cargo bike and a, and a backcountry tent for three <laughs>
1: <laughs> man you know good luck on that journey it'll be here before you know it but man every little phase of it just changes so fast just like just like an adventure every day is different this you know the sun sets the sun rises everything just it seems like nothing changes, but weeks and months pass, and it's just so crazy how much actually does. Awesome. Hey, well, Tom, good talking to you. Yeah, thank Thanks you for so much. Me. Have a great night.
0: Cheers, Mason. All right,
1: see ya. Bye.